Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Just for the avoidance of any doubt, um, our Burlington vision is to help you be the church with the people and in the places where God has already uh, put you. Our desire is to support, encourage, help, stimulate you to respond to that particular calling which is uniquely yours. So if you have a missional vision, an idea growing inside of you, something that's bursting to get out, a particular boat that you sense even ever so faintly God is asking you to step out of, then we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to encourage you, to support you, to be alongside you in that particular uh, journey. Together, we can be the church in the neighborhoods, workplaces, and networks of our town. And that's where God's calling us uh, to make a difference, where we become uh, world changers. And secondly, in case there's any avoidance of doubt, Burlington is a place uh, to belong, for you to uh, belong to the family. And in that sense, we are together so much more than a weekly celebration. Additionally, we gather together in communities across our town, sharing our lives, growing as followers of Jesus, and seeking to reach out to the world that is uh, around us. And we'd love to invite you, if you're not already, to join in with that whole journey that we're on. So if either of those things are touching you, connecting with you, then uh, contact us. Sometimes people say, I don't know how to contact you. Well, f- get hold of anyone with one of these around their neck, and it's a really good place uh, to start. Uh, contact the office, get in touch. We're not so big, it's hard to find the right person. Uh, push through, find the right person, and we'd love to uh, connect with you in that uh, way. We're in a new series that's not quite so new anymore, in the book of Mark. Chapter 4 today, we're right on track. Uh, If you missed it last week, Claire was brilliant, so you need to listen to the podcast of last week. You can get the podcast online. You can get the podcast on your church app. You can have it on your computer or on your phone, or if you have a tablet, you can also get it there. You can get it using your podcast app, or if you don't know where else to look, sign up to iTunes and search Burlington Audio, you can find it there. In other words, it's everywhere. It is the most popular podcast the world has ever known. Find it, listen to it, engage with it, and uh, it probably pops up in a few other places as well. Listen to uh, last week as we journey together. And our rhythms as a church are changing, so we're not all here every Sunday, which means the rhythm of connecting in uh, through that particular technology is becoming increasingly important to us. Uh, So make sure you're familiar with it and you connect in as a matter of routine, whether you end up physically being here or not. Uh, Being physically here is really important, and I'll say more about that perhaps on another Sunday. Otherwise, this will just get into a whole load of useful things for me to say, and we'll never get to Mark chapter 4. Okay, here we go. Why did Jesus talk in parables? Chat to your neighbor. Go. (coughs) 
After 30 seconds, it all went strangely quiet, like we've all run out of things to say to one another. Uh, so why did Jesus talk in parables? So people could understand, sorry, to make it relevant to the day. People will remember a story. He spoke about everyday things. <laughs> They're celebrating themselves, Elizabeth, but they copied you, simple as that. <clears throat> people are looking for God, that's absolutely right. Nicola, let's hold that thought. The answer here confuses me. Uh, it confuses me too. And uh, there's a few nodding heads going, okay. You see, N- Nicola said the answer here, I'm assuming she's referring to the passage, um, confuses her. And instead of isolating her and leaving her on her own and saying, what kind of a Christian is she? Uh, I, I agreed with her and uh, brought her in in a warm sense of welcome. That's right, Nicola, we're struggling like that too. Because um, we are. Uh, Because the popular understanding of the parable, which we've kind of illuminated in these moments, doesn't quite fit with the way Jesus talked about parables. The the popular, if I can summarize, is kind of, there's this complex stuff all about God and life and everything, and Jesus tells a simple little story to help us understand. In other words, it's a bit like a children's address. It's way too complicated, so we'll tell you a simple little story. Life's like this, boys and girls. In the hope that something that's deeply complex will suddenly become amazingly clear for us to understand. But there are a couple of problems, as you'll see. And this is where the problem with parables begins. Look at verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. You see, the problem with the parables is it didn't make it any clearer. And these were the disciples. The disciples didn't understand. He speaks in parables so it would be clear, but it wasn't. The problem with the parables is that they don't work, at least on that level. Uh, And this wasn't a one-off. It says, uh, uh, it talks a lot. Every time he spoke to the crowds in parables, certainly in chapter 4 and in other places too, he has to then explain the parable privately to the disciples. So instead of making it clear, it appears to become more obscure. Look how the, um, towards the end of the chapter, or at least the end of this section of the whole of chapter 4, verse 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. Notice the contrast that's being drawn between the crowds and the disciples. This will be important for us. It's not that the disciples got it and the crowds didn't. The crowds and the disciples listened to the parables, and they were both none the wiser. It's even more of a problem because when the disciples took Jesus aside and said, Do you know, Jesus, you're telling us these stories to try and make it simple to help us understand, but we've got no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus kind of says, Well, I'm doing that deliberately, verse 10 to verse 12. When he was alone, the twelve of the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. It implies, it suggests that Jesus is deliberately being unclear with his message in order to create an element of confusion or obscurity. You're right, says Jesus. It is unclear, and I kind of want it that way. And just to give this the kind of killer blow, I mean, go figure. Why is Jesus talking in riddles to make the truth deliberately obscure? Look at verse 9, just to give it the kind of killer point. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. 
Now, would you do me a favor? Would you look at the person's ears next to you? I mean, are they, are they good for hearing, those ears? Or are they just for show? What kind of ears are they? Because Jesus is kind of going, well, everybody might have ears, but, but some people haven't got the right ears. Some people have got ears that can't hear. Talking in parables appears to be more of a problem than a solution. Preachers and teachers the world over, you might disagree with this, but put a huge amount of effort into trying to make things clear, although you might wish they tried a lot harder. But Jesus, in contrast, seems to put a bit of effort in making things a little obscure. Don't you love him, Jesus? He's enigmatic, beautiful, wild, captivating, mysterious. We think we've got him in this little box telling simple stories, and it discovers we've got it all upside down. When we take away the filter, Jesus, no filter, of our own understanding, the way since we were led to believe, since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, Jesus tells us stories so that we can understand difficult things in an easy way, blah, 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 blah. We've got that filter that we've grown up with. You see, a few minutes ago, we were super competent with our year seven RE homework because we knew what parables were. Now we're not so sure that we understand any of it. But we mustn't lose heart. Let's keep digging because there's always treasure as we plumb the depths of God's truth. Key point coming up for the two of you writing notes, this is it. The problem with the parables becomes the power of the parables. The problem with the parables becomes the power of the parables. Now I'm talking in riddles. I'm enigmatic. Just being like Jesus, don't shoot the messenger. And that should not surprise us because what you see there is a kingdom principle. And if we use a different example, we will see the principle at work um, before we go any further. You will know that the place of problem, the difficulty of struggle in our lives, in our circumstances, in our situations, the difficult places become the places where God's power is most unleashed in our lives. Are you with me? When it's difficult, our faith grows. When it's difficult, we grow through the struggle. And so profound and real is this experience that you will all be able to tell me of other people and maybe have stories yourself where you will look back at an awful struggle, difficult time and say, well, if it wasn't for that time, my faith, my relationship with God, my whatever would not be where it is today. If I had my time all over again, I would probably still choose that struggle. The problem of the parables becomes the power of the problem. The place of the struggle also becomes the place where God's power gets unleashed. Paul put it exactly the same way, didn't he? He said, when I'm weak, then there's room for God's grace. And somehow something different happens because, I become, because I'm acknowledging my weakness. My weakness becomes a strength. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Listen to what he says. I delight... In weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. I delight. I mean, he's got it bad, hasn't he? Delight in weaknesses, insults. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. So we get the principle. The principle that in the struggle, God's power gets unleashed. Okay, wind it back. The problem of the parables becomes the power of the parables. The power of the parables... Is to what? It's to produce in our lives life-changing faith. 
The whole passage is about hearing, how we respond to the word of God. It's about our ears. The word hear, I think, I forgot what it was, I should have written it down. Uh, the, the word hear, I think, is, is, is mentioned 30 odd times in this chapter alone. So it, it's all about how we hear. It's all about how we respond, how we listen, how we tune in. It's all about whether your ears are any good or not, to put it bluntly. And if our ears are right, then we will produce a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and 100 times. That's the dominant parable in the whole uh, chapter. Parables are not homely stories for sluggish minds or visual aids designed to make a simple point. Jesus has made that clear and they don't work on that basis anyway. Parables as a didactic, as a teaching method is the exact opposite of the kind of prosaic, propositional teaching that we've so encouraged in our churches, the three-point sermon, if you like. On the contrary, parables require, as indeed do the three-point sermons, by the way, and I'm getting to the point, parables require an investment of imagination and heart, imagination and heart on the part of the listener in order for the listener to begin to access the truths contained within it. So in a typical environment, I do the complicated work of making it all make sense and handing it to you. You do the easy task of listening. Jesus, because he's brilliant and changes it all around, turns that whole thing all around. He goes, I'm going to do the simple bit of telling you a little ditty, a little simple story. You will have to do the hard work of entering into the story, of investing your imagination and your heart in order for you to begin to connect with the truth. The emphasis is firmly on the listener and not the speaker. The only way parables can be understood at the deepest level is for one to dare to become involved in the world of the story, to be willing to risk seeing God with new eyes and to encounter the truths contained within it. The power of the parables is to produce life-changing faith if investment is made. If investment is made. If we make the investment, the parable will do its work in producing life-transforming faith in our lives. Without that investment, the parable remains a simple story that can be retold if you like. A childish tale or an enigmatic riddle depending on how you view it. But at that level, you might have ears, but you haven't heard. Remember the contrast we talked about earlier between the crowd and the disciples. Both sets didn't understand. Both sets were presented with a riddle that they couldn't quite make sense of. Both sets either had the choice of saying, this is some, this is some daft childish tale, or there's something much deeper going on that I need to get to grips with. The disciples, not just the twelve but others, are... Um, illustrated in this chapter as those that seek to go deeper. They take Jesus aside and they're willing to go, I didn't understand that riddle. There is so much more to that than meets 
the eye. I want to engage with you, Jesus, in this story that seems so simple. But because it's you that is telling this story, I know it has the power to change my life. And that's why the story at the end of the chapter seems quite weird. We know that Mark's arranging his material. He's not just going in chronological order. Uh, Why does he tell that story about them being on the lake and Jesus calming the storm with his words? Why? Because the chapter ends with that realization that the words of Jesus have some kind of power that encapsulates, encompasses the whole universe. That this guy, when he speaks, he is saying something so much bigger and deeper than a childish tale. And to leave it at that level is simply to miss the whole point of what's going on. And so you have the crowd that utterly miss the point and the disciples that are ready to make the investment. Verse 10 and 11, when he was alone, 12 and the others around him, so more than the 12, asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is in parables. A slightly different play on the language here. To those on the outside, everything is in enigmatic riddles. Everything is is in parables that they don't seem to be able to get a grip on, a, a handle on. The disciples are making the investment to have their lives reshaped. Come follow me, said Jesus. Come and be like I am. Be who I am. Do what I do and say the things that I say. They're putting in the investment. And if we want the parables to touch our lives, then we have to make that same investment that the disciples made. And that investment was ultimately not just to get more intellectual knowledge. But that investment that the disciples made was to recognize that the riddle is solved by allegiance to the riddler. Now that's a great tweet, isn't it? The investment, sorry, the parable is solved by the recognition that the riddle is solved by the allegiance to the riddler. To know that intellectual understanding of truth changes nothing. They understood a farmer went out to sow, and as a lamp you put it on a stand, and as a mustard seed. To understand it intellectually changes very little. What creates life is to become absorbed, submitted, and shaped by the truth. And that truth, says Jesus, ultimately isn't a set of propositions, although we might bring it down to that in order to understand it a little and grasp hold of it, but it's an invitation to come to a person. And unless you do that, you will always remain the outsider. Notice how the chapter also divides the people. Outsiders, it uses that term. It doesn't quite use the word insider, but it might just as well. Outsiders and insiders. And so to the outsider, all things come in parables. All things are enigmatic tales they just can't grasp. And there's a whole theme here going on in Mark's gospel. To the outsider, the miracles made no sense either. That was chapter 3. To the outsider, the death of Jesus remains a complete enigma. We'll come to that in several uh, weeks hence. The life and death of Jesus to the outsider is simply bewildering and makes no sense. Only to those who are ready to invest in Jesus, emerge out of these stories with new insights, fresh revelation, and ultimately life-transforming faith. The problem of the parables is also its power. Isn't it brilliant? Just me? I think it's brilliant. I think Jesus is amazing, which is just as well, because I'm a minister. 
So every parable is effectively an invitation. Every parable is effectively Jesus saying, you can stay on the outside, or if you want, come on in. Be a part of it. Wrestle with it. Engage with it. Be changed by it. Come on in and discover the secrets of the kingdom. And so it's like an enticing invitation. The parables are like shop windows. You might look at the shop window and go, I I, I don't even want to go inside that shop. Or that something might catch your eye and into the shop you might go. And Jesus says, look, these are the parables. If you've got ears, begin to listen and get drawn in. Come in to the story and make the investment. And ultimately, investment is not just in some propositional truth, as I was saying. But ultimately, investment is in a personal truth because the person of the parables is Jesus. And so with each story, he's throwing out this invitation. Will you open your ears? Will you choose to have ears that listen? And I know there's another side of the whole coin that revelation only comes from the Father. But everything about Mark's gospel is telling a story about how the Father wants all the outsiders to become insiders. If we get time, we'll go back to the interpretation of that um, prophecy from Isaiah. Remind me at the end, perhaps, if I haven't gone there. The whole of the story of Mark is, is about, will you, will you choose to come in from the outside? Will you choose to open your hearts and bring yourself into the story, or from Jesus' perspective, to come into my story and allow the truth to touch and change you? And there's nothing new here. It's the same principle that we've been aware of all the time. And you know this verse. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's all Jesus is saying. If you want to find me in this, you've got to do some seeking. The responsibility Jesus is placing, not on the speaker, which was himself, but on the hearers. This is great news for all preachers. We can be as obscure and as enigmatic as we like, and we're simply doing what Jesus did. And the responsibility is yours, my friends. The most obvious outsiders in Mark's gospel become insiders. The Syrophoenician woman, the woman unclean with the flow of blood, the father of an epileptic, blind Bartimaeus, the woman who anointed Jesus, and so on. The invitation is there to to come on in. But most have no interest. Most have no desire. They're satisfied with simple, childish tales or simply to remain in their lost bewilderment. Most are content with ears that do not hear. Now, we'd never be like that, would we? Content to have ears that do not hear. And so we're challenged about our posture towards the parables. You see, the posture of the parables invite, sorry, the posture of the parables invite reveals our posture towards Jesus. Are we happy, like the crowds, to settle with nice stories, to enjoy feel-good sermons? You know that stuff? that just goes around the internet. And in the words of Ruth Jones, that's very emotional. Who's Ruth Jones? Look it up. Are we content with podcasts that prop us up or pep us up? Are we satisfied with worship that lifts us emotionally? If that is our posture, and if that's as far as we go, the parables of Jesus' day speak into our world. And in parabolic terms, we remain, in that sense, outsiders. That's what Mark's helping us see. So we can look like an insider. 
You see, the crowds at first, they looked like an insider. They were there. They were hanging on the miracles. And, you know, when Jesus healed someone, they were, had their hands in the air. Do you know, like good Christian worshippers. They were right in for it. And they came back the next day for more funny stories and a bit more healings. They looked like they were insiders. But the story of Holy Week is that insiders actually turned out not to be very inside at all. Enjoy the sermon, but keep it at a distance, just like the story Jesus was telling. It's only as we invest our lives in the person of Jesus that the true secrets of the kingdom are made known to us. Only as we choose to have ears that are willing to hear to embrace the truth that we change. And you need to want it. It's back to this seek me and you'll find me. And we've been guilty. I don't mean we, although we play our part. You know, church has been guilty of um, reinforcing this, uh, this passivity in terms of the listener. That somehow we pay someone in its crudest form to do the hard work of wrestling with it all and then presenting it on a Sunday in a little ditty kind of way. And if you like, that's my trade. Jesus is challenging that. Therefore, in you and in me, that there is a wrestling to go on for all of us, for the listener, to put our imagination and our hearts into the reality of the stories and allow the Jesus who is revealed within them to shape us and change us. Following Jesus, then, is about bringing our everything into the reality of God's Word. If you're not committed enough, this is what Mark is saying, effectively, Because he's going to build up, he's going to ramp up the level of commitment as we go through the gospel. If you're not committed enough to invest your life into the truth of these stories, you will never be committed to invest your life enough to become a disciple. Because Jesus says to become a disciple, you've got to take up your cross. I mean, that seems quite sort of religious and safe from our point of view. But the idea of taking up your cross for those that daily saw people executed on a Roman cross was anything but safe and comfortable and easy. Jesus is saying something utterly extreme about the levels of commitment required to be a disciple. And so he's already beginning to put a mirror up to the crowds and say, if you can't even dig into these stories, you're already showing yourselves to be on the outside. Peter spoke up, we've left everything to follow you. As Jesus said about being a disciple, you're going to need to leave everything. And the parables are another way of saying you can stay on the edge if you like, and most did, but if you really want it, You need to be in. And that means being all in. It's a barometer of our commitment. And maybe that's why the parable of the sower dominates this whole chapter. You can have ears, you can be the good soil, or you can look like the good soil. You see, two out of half of them, or at least three quarters of them, look like they're good soil, at least at the beginning. So it looks really good and really promising. Only 25% actually turn out to be good soil, have the right kind of ears. But the middle half, they look like they've got the right ears. They're doing all the right things. They're showing up in all the right places. They're making all the right grunts, you know, hallelujahs, to encourage the preacher in the right place. You know, the things you're good at, yeah? Making the right noises. But turned out not to be not very good soil after all. I'm not suggesting that of you people. You're keeping it all more serious and locked inside because you're deeply reflecting and absorbing in the Psalms and in the parables. Or you can be like the good soil. Or or you can be like the 25% that we concentrate on, those that just completely reject it. So some people are obvious. Jesus, Mark's already made that point about the religious leaders. Don't be confused. They're obvious. Look at what they're doing. 
And then there's this whole lot of people, the crowds that are going, yeah, we love you, Jesus. We think this is the best thing, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Save us, Jesus. Jesus goes, well, I'm off to Jerusalem. Oh, we're not coming. What are you going to do there? No, no, no. And and we've lost it. They show themselves to be outsiders. The story of the crowds. It turned out false because they weren't in. Palm Sunday message. They looked like they wanted it, but they didn't. They looked like they had ears, but actually they didn't have the right ears at all. That bit about Isaiah, by the way, a couple of linguistic challenges with Isaiah, if you're interested. The bit where it says they might be ever perceiving so that they might be forgiven. It could render, in order that they might be forgiven, uh, is, is one way of helping us understand what uh, uh, Mark's saying by, or, or what Jesus was saying by, by referring to the passage. The passage in Isaiah is all about the judgment of God for people that are willfully deciding not to listen. You need to think about that as well. But when you get a passage or a verse or a quote that you don't quite understand, a hermeneutical principle is this. We take all the things that we do understand and we use the things that we do understand to help make sense of the stuff we don't understand. So the whole sweep of the scriptures is that God wants to save everyone. You with me? There's no way on earth the scriptures tell a story, ultimately, of Jesus dying on a cross just to save the chosen few. The chosen few will be saved. That's how it will pan out in the end. But the invitation, everyone who comes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. For God so loved the the world. God didn't just so love a few of them. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And even towards the end when people are saying, we can't understand, there's so few people coming to faith, what on earth is going wrong? And, and, and why isn't Jesus coming back? And the, um, Peter writes, well, he's, he's not slow. We're just longing for everybody to be saved. Are you with me? And the whole story of Mark is about the outsider becoming an insider. So however we understand what's going on with that Isaiah passage, and we could have done a whole sermon just on that, we mustn't let the things we know to be true uh, uh, become dislocated from the things that we are continuing to struggle with. I want to share um, an email uh, that we received uh, this week, that Mark received actually, and uh, uh, it's from Lizzie Kenning, and uh, some of you will know Lizzie, and uh, I think it's easier just to read uh, what she says, and in some ways it speaks way more eloquently and powerfully about what it might mean to get hold of the right ears. I was so pleased to receive your email with the details of the song, Trust You Forevermore. She was Googling a song that John and Anna had written and wondering why she couldn't find it all around the world. Just a question of time. Just a question of time. It's a good process, but a bit too early. I'm sorry I didn't get back to you quicker. As a working mum of three, replying to emails is often something which escapes me. Can't imagine that. Gosh. It's probably partly why God has had me awake since 3.30 a.m. until I finally gave in and got up at 4.45 isn't that human nature? You lie there for an hour and a quarter. May as well make use of my time, I guess. I wanted to share with you a personal testimony about soap, which you might like to share with the congregation. I'm married to a Spaniard and have been living in Spain for nearly 10 years. I was baptized by Claire and Simon, that's the Claire and Simon that you know, as a teenager at Burlington, so you guys will always have a special place in my heart. As you know, I've been listening to the Burlington podcasts, so I've heard about soap more than once. She's been listening and she's been hearing. This is remarkable. As the new year approached, I was looking for a new way to spend my devotional time and get closer to God to really discover who he is. So I decided to give soap a try and I started on Friday the 29th of December 2017. 
We were back in the UK at the time, so I was eager to come back to Burlington, and to my great pleasure, I had the opportunity to walk through a soap session with the whole congregation on Sunday the 31st of December 2017. I must admit, I don't follow your reading plan. Whilst in England, I asked my dad what he read. That's just a joke. It's fine. Um, My dad is a very wise man who reads his Bible every day, and he told me that he reads one chapter of the Old Testament and one passage of the New Testament because the New Testament is shorter. And and then he just starts the New Testament again when he finishes it. Let me get the whole sentence out before you start. Uh, uh, Let me say that again so you can be absolutely clear. Uh, One chapter of the Old Testament and one passage of the New Testament, and because the New Testament is shorter, uh, he just starts the New Testament again when he finishes This sounded like a good plan, so I decided to do the same, and I found it just the right amount of Scripture for me. Oh, how I love soap. It really is helping me to discover God's heart. There's always a verse that speaks to me. So often there is more than one, and I sometimes have to wrestle with myself to choose the verse for that day. What most stands out to me is the fact that I'm really discovering God in the Old Testament, whereas before doing soap, I always struggled a bit with the Old Testament. Sometimes I will look at the chapter title and think, there will be nothing in that for me. We've all been there. And lo and behold, there is. Little cheer, because we've all been there too. One such example was when I was reading through the list of Esau's descendants in Genesis 36. (laughs) Not a passage many of us have committed to memory. That's me saying that. Back to Lizzie. I thought it would just be a list of unfamiliar names, which I'm sure it was, when I suddenly found this gem, the sons of Zibion, Allah and Anha. This is the Anha who discovered hot springs in the desert while he was grazing the donkeys of his father Zibion. Genesis 36, verse 24. Discovering hot springs in the desert. I believe that's a prophetic word for Spain, the country I live in, the country I love. This year, God has opened up the floodgates for me, and he's strengthening and deepening my faith like never before. Soap is teaching me so many things. These are just a few of my soap titles in my journal. God remembers, listens, enables, and takes away. Pay attention to your dreams. I cannot do it, but God will. Proclaim the kingdom and heal all. Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. I attend a non-denominational international church here in the south of Spain called All Nations Christian Fellowship. This weekend, we've had the privilege of hosting a team of American worship leaders. They blessed us immensely yesterday with an amazing worship night. I do not want to sound proud or glory to God, but I'm convinced that soap has greatly helped me to finally recognize and accept God's gift of prophecy through my redeemed imagination. During yesterday's worship night, God gave me a battle cry, which I sang out during worship, and he gave me a picture. I'd like to share these two things with the congregation of Burlington. I believe it's a prophetic word for Spain, but I think it will do everyone good to hear. I would also like to share that I absolutely love journaling. Simon said that when you do soap, your journals will become treasures, and they absolutely do. Journaling helps me work out my thoughts and prayers, but also gives me a record of my prayers to look back on when God suddenly answers them. One such prayer I said on Wednesday, and God has answered already. This is the prayer, dated 14th of March, 2018. Help me to trust your gift of prophecy as you use my redeemed imagination to unlock people's hearts and connect them to you, Father God. Battle cry. Use your weapons. Use your weapons of mass destruction that I've given to you. Use your prayers. Use your worship. Use your hearts. Revival, revival.
Prophetic word for Spain. This evening God showed me that every time we pray, every time we worship, every time we put Jesus on display through acts of kindness and love, a bomb goes off. And its effects ripple out of our hearts, breaking through this world's darkness. Please use your weapons of mass destruction and join me in praying for revival. I hope and pray that this blesses the Bullington congregation. And I ask that you would join with us in praying for revival in Spain and revival everywhere. And she says a few uh, more personal things, uh, also saying she's got some space in uh, Spain if any of you would like to visit. In conclusion, like I've said before, I love soap and I'm so addicted to it, I get up an hour early to do it before the kids get up, which means some days getting up at 6am and others at 5.30. I know it's a God thing because I could never do that in my own strength, but soap nourishes me so much that if anyone were to ask me, how do you do that? How do you get up so early to do soap? My response would be, how do I not do it? Much love and blessings, Lizzie. As we begin to develop ears that hear, it becomes a momentum that's unstoppable. Our ears cannot help but begin to hear and perceive what the Spirit of God is doing. Are we prepared to make the investment, to wrestle, to engage, to jump right into what Jesus is saying and what he's really about? In that sense, the time we spend here in these moments can only ever just be the beginning. If the sermon begins and ends in these moments, we will of our own volition place ourselves as the outsiders in Mark chapter 4. So I guess it makes sense to say, if you've got ears, hear what the Spirit's saying to the church. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us as individuals to get into the discipline of not just listening like the crowds listened, but going into that quiet place, maybe with just a few people, sometimes on our own, into that quiet place of wrestling with what we've heard. Of not being content to take it at face value as a simple ditty or something, or some simplistic uh, message that has taken some complicated truth, but rather help us to begin with godly imagination, with open hearts to enter into the reality of the Jesus story, of the Jesus truth, to place our lives, everything about us, under the word of Jesus Christ. That the parables, all of Jesus' teaching, and the word of God itself would become alive and active because our ears would suddenly be wide open and we can't help ourselves but hear. And life-transforming faith is given birth in our hearts. And help us as a church to develop rhythms and structures and patterns that make this possible. May our reliance on the message doing the work slowly but significantly be changed into the hearers doing the work. That we together might make the investment in what you're saying and so allow all of our lives, everything that we are, to come under your will and purpose. May every bit of me that's on the outside become an insider. May my ears become finely tuned to hear in Jesus' name.